right. Well, thank you, Dan. Thank you, Mark. And thank you, Jackson. It's uh, good to be with you. It'd be better if we, we could see each other. But I'm so glad we could be together this way. And as Mark said, we're thankful for the technology that God has given us that we could do this. We uh, love and miss you guys already. And um, we're um, very thankful. I'm very thankful for Mark and Jackson and Dan and all the work they've put in and all that we've been able to do to try to put this together and all the other things that are going on. So they've done a great job and been a huge blessing. And we're praying that we can um, be back together again very, very soon. But until we are, uh, let's uh, get into the Word and try to find some encouragement uh, from our Father and our our Lord. So if you would, uh, this morning, turn to uh, Luke chapter 22, and we're going to look at verses 39 through 65. Obviously, at this time of year, we're preparing for Easter And we're also dealing with this coronavirus. And it's interesting that uh, these two things, uh, obviously in God's plan, um, work together in such a way that uh, we can uh, talk about Easter and what Christ did for us and see how it applies to this coronavirus as well. And one of the main connections is with regard to the whole idea of pressure. Obviously, we're going to be reading in a few minutes about the Lord Jesus and Peter and Judas and the whole situation there and how there were pressures that were building at that time. And we get to see how each of them responded under those pressures. Um, Interestingly enough, the word for tribulation uh, means pressure. Uh, It's often associated with the pressure of crushing grapes. And that can be seen as a positive thing or as a negative thing. Uh, in the scriptures. Um, Pressure is truly an an amazing thing. If you're in the bottom of the ocean, it can crush you um, if you're not protected. Um, But it can also form diamonds. And so pressure uh, can be good or can be bad depending on uh, how we respond to it. And pressure certainly brings out uh, our true colors, so to speak. Like we'll see in this passage, it can result in us, um, as I was saying, um, uh, we can respond in different ways to pressure. And in this uh, passage, we'll see how we can either turn to Jesus or we can turn on Jesus. We can either deny Jesus or we can deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. And it's just like we've heard the old cup illustration. Um, When the cup is shaken, uh, what comes out is what's in the cup. Now, as an unbeliever, only things are going to come out under pressure that that aren't uh, true trust and true love as the Bible describes it, or at least the kind of trust and the kind of love that the Lord calls us to. But as believers, uh, usually it's a mixture of the two. Uh, There's some... real trust and some real love that's coming out. There's also uh, a failure to trust and a failure to love. And so we want to look at that today and just see how it's reflected in this passage and see how we can apply it to our lives. But uh, before we read, let's go ahead and pray. Father, we do thank you that um, we have your word. Uh, We have a fixed point of reference in changing times. And we thank you that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
and we can trust your word, we can trust your promises, we can trust uh, what you've given us in your word that reveals the truth about you and about us and about the hope we have in Christ. And so we pray that you'd help us to uh, see and understand what we see in your word, help us to see how it applies to our lives, and we pray that you would uh, help us to trust you in the ways we need to, and to love in the ways we need to, and to do so more and more. And may you receive all the honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you happen not to see the first part of this, uh, we are looking at Luke chapter 22, verses 39 through 65 this morning. And this is going to be a discussion of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, as well as Judas's betrayal of Jesus and uh, Peter's denial of Jesus as well. And so if you would, take your Bibles and let's look at these verses together. And we're going to try and answer the questions, what happened when Jesus was arrested? Uh, what truths can we see illustrated uh, in these scenes? And how do we deal with the pressures um, that we're under in light of how they responded to the pressures that they were under? And so in Luke 22, verse 39, it says, And he, speaking of Jesus, came out and proceeded, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples also followed him. When he arrived at the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw. And he knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will but yours be done. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently. And his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. When he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow and said to them, Why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. While he was still speaking, behold, a crowd came and the one called Judas, one of the twelve, was preceding them. And he approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When those who were around saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus answered and said, Stop, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come against him, Have you come out with swords and clubs as you would against a robber? While I was with you daily in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this hour and the power of darkness were yours. Having arrested him, they led him away and brought him to the house of the high priest. But Peter was following at a distance. After they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard, and had sat down together, Peter was sitting among them. And a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the firelight, and looking intently at him, said, This man was with him too. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. A little later another saw him and said, You are one of them too. But Peter said, Man, I am not. After about an hour had passed, another man began to insist, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he is a Galilean too. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. Immediately, while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. 
The Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him, Before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him and beating him. And they blindfolded him and were asking him, saying, Prophesy, who is the one who hit you? And they were saying many other things against him, blaspheming. This is the word of God. Well, today we want to see, um, obviously, the truth that's revealed in this passage and see ourselves in light of the truth as well. The first thing I'd like to start with is the account that we find of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. So if you look again at verses 39 through 46, it says in verse 39, and he came out. And so at this point, you may recall last time we looked at the Passover um, that Jesus and his disciples celebrated. It was the last Passover and the first Lord's Supper. And so they are leaving uh, this Passover, and it says in verse 39 that they're proceeding to the Mount of Olives, and the other accounts let us know that they're going into the Garden of Gethsemane. In verse 40 it says, When they arrived at the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. Now we assume he spoke that to all the disciples that were left, the eleven, because Judas has already gone. But he also brought... Um, Peter, James, and John in a little further into the garden with him. And then it says um, in verse 41, and he, he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, which would have been about um, earshot, within earshot, so that they could hear what he was saying. And it says he knelt down and began to pray in verse 42, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. The other accounts let us know that Jesus prayed in a similar way three different times about whether or not there was a way possible for this cup to be removed from Jesus. And it says in verse 43, Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. Which is interesting in light of what we find earlier in um, chapter 21 where Jesus says in verse 36, Keep on the alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place. And so the Lord Jesus before had encouraged them to pray that they might have strength to escape the temptation that was coming upon them. And we see illustrated here the Lord Jesus praying himself and an angel strengthening him. And we assume that this means he's being strengthened in his human nature, being strengthened strengthened physically um, in light of the pressures that are on him. He's already told his disciples that he is uh, terribly grieved in light of what he's about to face. And so the pressures are intense. And we see how intense the pressures are on Jesus in light of what it says in verse 44, where it says, In being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. Now, some people think that's figurative that he was praying uh, so fervently that he was sweating um, big drops of sweat that are like drops of blood falling from your body. Others believe that, that Luke the physician is referring to a real physical condition that can happen under pressure where the capillaries begin to break under your skin and the sweat can actually be mingled with 
um, tints of blood so that it looks uh, like uh, blood um, mixed with sweat coming out of your pores under a very tense and pressure-filled situation. And so the Lord Jesus is receiving strength in his human nature even as he prays and he appeals to God uh, in this very, very difficult time that he's going through. Uh, then it says in verse 45, When he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow. If you read the other accounts, you find that Jesus gets up after every time that he prays and goes and finds the disciples to see if they're praying because he encouraged them to watch with him, to pray with him. But every time he prays, he comes back and he finds them sleeping. So three different times he's prayed. Three different times he's come back to see if they're still praying. And they're not. They're sleeping. They're asleep. It says they're asleep because of grief. Their, their eyes are heavy because it's late at night. And so he says in verse 46, Why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. In the other accounts he also says the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so he's encouraging them to pray like he's praying because he knows that they're going to be under intense pressure too. And they're going to need the strength that comes through prayer to respond appropriately, even as he has set the example for them in this situation. And so um, Jesus prays up to the point where Judas and those who are with Judas are coming to arrest him. But what I'd like to think about with you a little bit is to go back to where it says he prayed that the cup would be removed from him. And the question is, um, why doesn't Jesus say the cross or suffering? He doesn't say, Father, um, deliver me from the cross. He doesn't say, Father, deliver me from suffering per se, because there are going to be two other um, well, two thieves, actually, uh, crucified with him. They were going to endure the cross. And suffering was something that the Lord Jesus had experienced all of his life in various ways. And it was intensifying. He was suffering even at that very moment as he prayed. And yet he doesn't pray for deliverance from suffering per se. He doesn't pray for deliverance from the cross per se. But he prays for deliverance from the cup. And the cup, um, best uh, defined, can be seen, for instance, in one scripture like Revelation 16:19, where it talks about um, a cup of wrath. And so in Revelation 16, verse 19, it says, The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the Great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. So there we see the cup uh, represents as figurative of the wine of God's divine, not simply wrath, but fierce wrath. So what the Lord Jesus knew was coming wasn't just physical death, not even one of the worst kinds of physical deaths that you could endure, i.e. crucifixion, but he was going to experience the divine fierce wrath of God that you and I deserve. And he knew that was coming. And so he prays that there's any way possible that this might be 
removed from him that the father would remove it. But the answer is there is no other way. There is no other way for us to be saved unless the Lord Jesus drinks the very cup of wrath that you and I deserve. Uh, there's a movie called National Treasure that our family enjoys watching. And there's a scene in that movie where uh, an FBI agent is talking to one of the main characters. And he's talking about the fact that, you know, you guys have been involved in, in stealing the Declaration of Independence. And, and therefore, uh, you got to go to prison. Uh, but if you help us out, maybe, you know, we take that into consideration and you still go to prison. And that's when... Uh, one of the main characters says, is there a way for me not to have to go to prison? I really don't want to go to prison. And the FBI agent says, someone's got to go to prison, Ben. Someone's got to go to prison. And the reality is, the Bible tells us, someone has to bear the just wrath for sin. God has said in the Old Testament that every sin must be punished. There must be a just penalty for every sin. And for every sin that I commit, there has to be a just penalty. And there's only two options. Either I receive that just penalty in eternal hell, or someone takes that just penalty for me. And there's only one person who could do that. That would be a God-man. And Jesus is the very God-man that we need who can take that just penalty for us and rescue us from the cup of God's fierce wrath. And that's what we celebrate when we partake of the bread and the cup. It's a reminder that Jesus came to rescue us from the cup of God's fierce wrath. In John 18 uh, Jesus will say to Peter when he tries to prevent uh, his arrest, uh, put the sword into the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? And so the Lord Jesus knew exactly what was happening. And um, we see here uh, a contrast between uh, the disciples and Jesus. The disciples sleep and they don't pray and they're not ready to uh, go through God's will for them and they respond very poorly as a result. Jesus prays and he submits to the will of God and he's prepared for what he must go through. The next section is verses 47 through 53 where we see the account of Judas and of the crowd that's come to arrest Jesus. And it says in verse 47, While he was still speaking, behold, a crowd came. And the one called Judas, one of the twelve, was preceding them, and he approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? And so Judas is leading this huge crowd that includes Roman soldiers, it includes temple police, it includes representatives from the um, religious leaders, and Judas evidently is out in front of them, leading them, and he comes up to Jesus and he prepares to give him a friendly kiss, a kiss of friendship and love, a greeting that you would give to anyone that was a friend of yours. And Jesus um, stops him in a sense and says, um, 
Judas? Are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Really? And we find out from the other accounts that Jesus, uh, Judas goes on and kisses um, Jesus. And then Jesus responds by saying, Friend, do what you came for. And what he came for was to have Jesus arrested and to betray him into the hands of his enemies. And so that's what happens at this point, is that the temple police come up and the other soldiers, presumably, to arrest Jesus. And if you read the other accounts, you find out that Jesus says, um, Whom do you seek? So Jesus isn't running away. He isn't trying to avoid arrest. He steps forward. He says, Whom do you seek? And they say, We seek Jesus the Nazarene. And at that point, he says, I am, or I am he. Maybe just I am, as a reference to God. And they all fall down. They, they were slain in the spirit at that point. And they fall down, and then they get back up, and he says again, who do you seek? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus the Nazarene. He says, I am he, but let these others go. And so Jesus is saying, rest me, you can take me, I'm ready to go, but let these others go. And at that point, they begin to um, seize Jesus, and the disciples ask the question, Lord, do you want us to fight back? And presumably, um, before Jesus could even respond, Peter takes his sword and swings at the slave of the high priest and cuts off his right ear. Jesus immediately stops it and says, Stop all this. I don't want you to defend me. He says, um, Don't you know that if I really wanted to be defended, that I could call on my Father and he could send 12 legions of angels? Don't you know this has to happen for Scripture to be fulfilled? And don't you know that those who pick up the sword will die by the sword? And so he diffuses the situation, tells his uh, disciples to stand down and then he rebukes the crowd by saying you know you could have arrested me uh, during the day in the temple you didn't have to uh, do it at night you didn't have to bring out a huge group of people with swords and clubs and lanterns and all those kinds of things you could have arrested me then but the reality is um, this is the time this was the only time you could do it um, because this is the only time that I would let you do it. This is the hour and power of darkness being exhibited, and um, I'm in control of this whole situation. And once Jesus says that, rebuking them for how they were doing it, yet giving himself to them, that's when all the disciples run away. And it even says in the book of Mark that a young man who was uh, in a sheep gets grabbed, and he runs away naked, and that's probably Mark himself who wrote the Gospel of Mark, um, giving us an account of Peter's um, time uh, with Jesus. Well, at that point, Jesus is seized by the crowd, and he's brought to um, the high priest's house. Um, the contrast in this is... The contrast between uh, Jesus and Judas because Jesus is voluntarily laying down his life, voluntarily being arrested. And Judas will 
eventually take his own life. He will, instead of laying down his life for someone else, he will take his own life in despair. Well, what I'd like for us to think about is Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss. Have you ever wondered why um, he did it that way? Why didn't he just say, uh, see that guy over there? Uh, that's him. Arrest him. Take him. Why a kiss? Well, I don't know for sure why a kiss, but uh, if you think about it, um, Paul talks about the fact that there are various ways in which we see just how uh, terrible sin really is. If you read Romans 7, Paul talks about that. Um, and the fact is that we see just what sin really looks like through these kinds of situations. In Romans 7, uh, Paul is talking about the fact that um, our sinful nature will take a good thing like the law and actually lead us into sin. And so that we see sin perverting something good and turning it into something bad. And it shows us how utterly sinful sin is. You could also say that um, there's a sense in which God wants us to see that evil um, should be seen even behind the best of actions when those actions are coming from people who are not trusting in Christ, who have not been born again. That even though the action itself might be good, the heart behind it is not. And so that's why the Bible could tell us there's none good. No, not one. Apart from a sovereign, gracious work of God in our hearts to renew us and to reconcile us to God. Apart from God, uh, there's none righteous. No, not one. There's no one who's good. There's none who do good. Based on that definition, that it's not simply what you do, it's the heart behind what you do. And as sinners who are not reconciled to God, we don't do anything good for the glory of God or for uh, obedience to the scriptures or to magnify Christ or anything like that. And so therefore, uh, Judas could do a, quote, good thing, and yet it wasn't a good thing. It was an act of betrayal because that was the heart behind what he did. And we know that that was his heart because it says earlier in Luke 22 that Judas entered, excuse me, Satan entered Judas. And all that was happening was actually being fueled by a heart of hatred toward God. And one of the worst things that uh, we experience in life is the betrayal of a friend or the betrayal of someone we love and that we think love us. One of the classic examples outside of Scripture is what happens to Julius Caesar when he's assassinated on uh, the Ides of March and and he sees in the group of uh, people, this crowd of people that are uh, the assassin crowd uh, who've come to take his life. He sees uh, someone he thought was a friend, someone he thought was uh, someone who loved him, Brutus, and legend has it, we're not sure if this was really what he said, may have said something to the, this effect, but basically 
you too, Brutus? Are you too someone who's going to uh, actually join in assassinating me? And we can see by this that the worst kind of betrayal is the betrayal of one who has known the love of God in the most wonderful of ways and then condemned God to death. That's what was happening with Judas. Um, I think that's why Jesus said, Friend, do what you have come for. He was saying, You're presenting yourself to me as a friend, but you've come to betray me. And that, therefore, you're betraying the very love of God that has been shown you for these years. And you're uh, turning your back on it. And that's why we need to see sin. We need to see sin as a betrayal of the love of God. That God has loved us and yet we still have rejected him and we've condemned him to death rather than allow him to have his proper place in our lives. If you go on, we find the last um, section that we read, verses 54 through 65. It says, Having arrested him, they led him away and brought him to the house of the high priest. But Peter was following at a distance. Um, it says that Peter, obviously, after having run off, um, eventually worked his way back uh, into a place where he could follow the crowd and see their, where they were taking Jesus. And they were taking Jesus to um, the house of the high priest. And it, if you read all the accounts, uh, there was a former high priest named Annas who evidently lived in the same area, same courtyard, um, with the high priest Caiaphas. And so the first thing they did was to take Jesus to Annas, the former high priest who was the father-in-law of the present high priest Caiaphas. And so while that's going on, Peter shows up and wants to get into um, the courtyard. And there's a, a gate there. and But there's another disciple who evidently also uh, comes back um, and that appears to be John, who wrote the Gospel of John. And he is, a, is well known to the high priest and to the people there at the high priest's residence. And so they let John in, and John gets Peter into the courtyard as well. And so uh, Peter just kind of goes in, and he tries to keep a low profile. And so he goes in, and he warms himself at the fire with the others who are standing there in the middle of the night, trying to stay warm on a cold night. Uh, probably the very um, officers, uh, some of which who were uh, participating in the arrest of Jesus, some of the people were probably there waiting to see the outcome. And Jesus is being uh, questioned by Annas during this time. And um, and so uh, Peter's being um, quiet and just watching and, and seeing what's going on. And then the servant girl who lets him in, uh, takes a good look at him and, and begins to accuse him of having been with Jesus. And that's when he makes his first denial. He says, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know him. And it appears at that point that he probably moved away from the fire, uh, moved away from the firelight so they couldn't see his face and he could be a little more in the shadows and maybe uh, less uh, noticeable. Well, eventually this servant girl um, and some others, another man and others began to question him again and, and say, you know, uh, we're pretty sure 
that you're a Galilean and that you are with Jesus too. And then he denies it again. And he actually, according to other accounts, uses a stronger uh, denial. And he denies Jesus with an oath. And then there appears to be a break of time. And, and during this break of time, it's very possible that Jesus was moved from the house of Annas to the house of Caiaphas. And that's where they began their informal investigation and questioning of Jesus before the high priest, Caiaphas. Well, during that time, um, Peter's just waiting around, and eventually they began to um, approach Peter again, and they began uh, questioning him and accusing him of being part of Jesus' uh, followers. And again, he uh, denies it, and the Bible says he begins to curse and swear. And so I, I don't think it means he would curse and swear like we typically think of cursing and swearing, but it meant that he was calling down curses upon himself if he was lying, and he was swearing that he did not know Jesus on a stack of Bibles, so to speak. That he was giving as strong a denial as he could, that he wasn't a follower of Jesus. And apparently at that very moment, Jesus is very likely brought out from the house of Caiaphas as he's making this bold and the strongest denial he could make. And Peter looks at Jesus, and Jesus looks at Peter. And they hear the rooster crow. And the Bible says that at that point, uh, Peter went out and wept bitterly. And so what we see is we see um, Peter denying Jesus three times, just like Jesus said he would. Even though Peter said, oh no, that's not me. I'm going to go to prison with you. I'm going to die with you if I have to. And when it came right down to it, he didn't do that. And interestingly enough, um, at that point, Peter knows that what Jesus said was going to come true came true. And everyone's attention begins to focus on Jesus. And Peter is able to leave. And yet the reality is they begin beating Jesus and mocking Jesus and accusing him of being a false prophet when he just proved that he is a prophet because he just prophesied that Peter was going to deny him three times before the early morning and the um, main crowing of the rooster came to about just like Jesus said it would. And yet they mock him as a false prophet when he just proved that he spoke the very words of God. One of the questions we can ask ourselves is, uh, why um, was a crow uh, from a rooster uh, used um, to um, remind Peter of what Jesus said? There's a story that I've told before about an Arab who's um, you know, having trouble sleeping in the middle of the night. He sees a bowl of dates beside his bed. He takes one of the dates. He bites into it, sees a worm, throws it away, grabs another one, bites into it, sees another worm, throws it away, bites into a third one, sees another worm, um, throws it away, turns out his light, and then he eats the bowl of dates. And the point of that story is, there are times when we feel like the consequences of the truth are too much for us to bear. 
and therefore we shut our eyes to the truth and we respond and act like those things are not true. And that's what we see happening here with Peter. Um, Peter is in contrast to Jesus. If you read the other accounts of Jesus, um, the high priest asked Jesus, are you the Christ? And Jesus, knowing what that would mean if he said, yes, I am, says, I am. And one of these days, you're going to see me coming back on the clouds in judgment. Well, Peter, in contrast, is basically asked, are you a follower of Christ? And he says, no, I'm not. He does not maintain his confession because he's afraid of the consequences. But how might the crowing of a rooster be some kind of encouragement to Peter even as he weeps his eyes out knowing what he's just done? Well, the rooster crowing, at least, you know, roosters tend to crow throughout the night to some degree or another, but their main crowing um, in the early morning is to announce the arrival of the sun, is to announce that darkness is going to go away and sunshine is about to appear. Uh, there's a verse in Psalm 30, verse 5, that says, if I can get here very quickly, Psalm 30, verse 5, For his anger is but for a moment, his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. Weeping may last for the night, Peter, but a shout of joy will come in the morning. And if you recall, Jesus told Peter that you're going to do this, but I've prayed for you that your faith will not fail. It's not going to completely crumble. But you will turn again, and you will be able to strengthen your brothers. Uh, the night is going to be bad, and it's going to reveal you in ways that you never thought you could be exposed. And yet, it won't be the final word for you, Peter. Uh, morning is going to come. And so the rooster uh, announcing the morning uh, very well could have been meant to uh, be an encouragement to Peter at that point because when Jesus looked at Peter, what do you think he was trying to communicate by his look? I think he communicated love and he communicated, remember Peter what I told you. I told you that you would do this, but I also told you that uh, there's more to come, that it's not all over. Um, that I will be with you, and you will recover, and you will maintain your faith in me. And so, um, Peter, hopefully, and hopefully all of us who find ourselves in that situation, can find encouragement through these kinds of things. Well, um, very briefly here, what I'd like to do is just try to encourage us as we wrap this up uh, for this Sunday, and have you think about just three truths um, that we need to keep in mind um, in light of this passage. The first truth is about prayer. 
Um, Jesus set the example for us in praying in that he was very honest with his father. He knew what he was going to have to experience, and he asked God to remove the cup, if there was any possible way. But he also said, but your will, not mine, be done. And so that's one reason why my favorite verse for prayer is Psalm 62.8, which says, Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. We're to pour out our heart, which may mean, Father, remove this cup from me. Take this coronavirus pandemic from us. But it also should include, but not my will, but thine be done. And we have to ask ourselves, um, when we pray, what do we want most? We need to ask God for what we want. But we have to check our hearts and say, what do I want most? Do I want most what I ask for? Or do I want most God's will to be done? And the only way to pray like Jesus is to do both. To pray for what we want as best we know, but also to want more God's will to be done. Secondly, uh, we need to understand not only that truth about prayer, but the truth about hypocrisy. Um, Judas is a warning to professing Christians in our country and around the world because Judas portrayed himself as a lover of Jesus even when he was betraying Jesus. He kissed him, which was an act of love and friendship, and yet he was betraying him. And so it's important for us, those of us who profess faith in Jesus, to examine our faith and say, who do I really think Jesus is? And what do I think really J Jesus really did? And have I handed my life over to Jesus and trusting him for the help I need and the happiness I long for? Or is my trust in something else and therefore I am likely and ready to hand him over to be condemned and to be killed and to be out of my life because I'm really not looking to him the help I need, and the happiness I long for. And finally, the truth about pride. Um, Peter is a warning to all true believers that um, we can uh, deny Christ in spite of our confident assertions to the contrary. Uh, we may think we're stronger than we are. And therefore, even as a Christian, a true believer in Christ, we need to ask my, ourselves, Am I living like I don't need God? If I'm not praying for the strength I need in this coronavirus situation and in every situation, then I'm living like I don't need God. And could I be underestimating the enemies of my soul thereby because I'm not praying? And maybe, um, more than I know it, I might even be hiding my association with Christ because I'm afraid of the consequences. The Bible tells us to be careful. Um, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. And so it's so important that we don't presume upon God, but that we trust his promises and we act accordingly. And that's the final thing that I, that I come to is how do we deal with the pressures on us? 
And there's so much I could say about this, but because of time, I'm just going to briefly touch on this. Um, the first thing, I'm just going to be five um, P words um, for how to deal with the pressures that we're experiencing now in light of what we've just seen in the scripture. The first thing is the word peace. Peace with God is required to have peace in this world. If I don't have peace with God, I'm not going to have peace in this world because my peace will be tied to my circumstances in this world. But if I have peace with God through faith in Christ and Christ alone, then I can have peace knowing that my Father is sovereign over everything. He's good, and everything that is happening, including this coronavirus pandemic, is for my good. And I don't have to be afraid of it. In fact, I can rejoice that God's going to do some amazing things in me and in the church of Jesus Christ through this situation. So peace with God is the very first thing. It's the most important thing. It's to be reconciled to God by turning from my sin, turning to God, and trusting in the only provision for my sin, which is Jesus, who lived the life we could never live, died the death that we deserve to die, and rose from the dead. The second thing is, is preservation. Excuse me, not preservation. It's for preservation, but it's actually presentation. And the idea is in Romans 12, it says the first thing that we're to do as Christians is to present our bodies a living and holy sacrifice to God. And therefore, if I don't um, want to be anxious, I need to be a Christian, for one thing. And secondly, I need to do what Jesus did. I need to present my life to God in submission to whatever his sovereign will is and in submission to his word in terms of how I'm to respond to what his sovereign will is. I'm to present my life to God. And that's the foundation for us having peace as believers. As long as my will and God's will is in competition, even as a Christian, I'm not going to have the peace that passes all understanding. So I have to present my life to God and submit to his will and submit to his word in terms of how he wants to respond to respond to what he's doing. The third thing is I have to be careful of pride. This is what Peter exhibited, the pride of thinking that, you know what, I'll be okay. Um, I'll respond okay um, without seeking God, without depending on God, as if it's just going to be automatic. But I don't need to pray. Jesus said, pray that you might have strength, but I don't need to pray. I can sleep. And so the Bible says we need to be careful of the pride that comes before a fall. And we have to remember that God gives grace to the humble. And how do we humble ourselves? And that's the fourth thing is prayer. We humble ourselves through prayer. That's an expression of humility. And so to receive the strength we need to walk through high-pressure situations, we have to pray. We have to ask God for it. We have the Holy Spirit, and yet we're to pray and ask for the Holy Spirit. We're to pray that God would give us the grace that we need. And finally, P, the final P is promises. We need, we need to focus on what God has promised us, because that's what we can confidently pray for. We can confidently ask God to give us what he's promised to give us. We are to plead the promises, like the uh, Puritans said. And as we focus on what God has promised us, as we ask for what God has promised us, as we fight 
the pride of thinking that we don't need to trust and focus on God's Word and, and pray. And as we present our lives to God, then we can find the peace that passes all understanding. It's my prayer that God will give that to all of us during this season. We love you much. Uh, we're praying for you. Please let us know if you have needs. And may God grant us fresh supplies of grace 